Hello, and welcome to Women With Books. I'm your host, hugely successful author, Lindsay Emery. Today, I'm really excited to share this interview with you. Uh, Julia Kelly and I have been friends for years, and I think this interview will give you a very good idea of just how, let's see, how should I put this? Creatively zany author friends are when we get together. Basically, we're always plotting some kind of story. Everything gets turned into a plot. So um, you'll hear a little bit of that and the fun that we can come up with when we're together. Like I said, Julie and I have been friends for years, and we're also co-founders, along with four other women, of something called HBIC Nation. And HBIC Nation was conceived as a place where creative entrepreneurs um, can find community, can find support and ideas and encouragement, and it's just a very positive place filled with writers and photographers and artists. Uh, We have a website, hbicnation.com, and a very active, awesome Facebook group. Uh, on Facebook. You can find us at HBIC Nation. And um, the six co-founders, we started a new podcast. It'll be a monthly podcast. Um, You can just look that up on, I think we're on Google Play and Apple Podcasts right now. And we're going to be, um, in 2018, tackling a theme um, each month about um, how to reach goals, how to build a community, how to network, how to deal with money and finances. And so I'm going to put that link uh, in the show notes if you want to hear some more uh, zaniness from me and Julia. We're, we're a little less zany there, but you never know what can happen. It's podcasts. Um Yeah, we can say whatever we want. It's the beauty of the 21st century and living in a free country. So um, check it out and check out this interview with Julia. I think you after you hear this, you're definitely going to want to have her back on um, because I think we kind of left some cliffhangers there. Um, she's going to have more books out. She's living in London, trying to find love with, you know, hopefully a... A young and handsome peer. So um, yeah, we're gonna. Ha- I'm gonna have to have her back on later on this year so that we can get updates on all these important things that you will hear about right now. Welcome to Women with Books. We have a very special, awesome guest today, Julia Kelly. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be doing this. from across the Atlantic from across the Atlantic oh it's so good to hear your voice yeah you too this is one of my favorite things is getting to hear people I love doing podcasts so it's very excited to be on on the podcast with you because it's almost like we're in the same room yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) well you have a new book coming out I think I'm going to try and release this the week that it comes out it's oh fabulous taste of temptation right it is yeah as soon it's... as I say things like that I, I, I worry that I've messed it up no I know I'm the same way I'm like oh god is the name of the person that I've known for years really the name that I just said <laughs> it's ridiculous well tell us about taste of temptation and the series that it's a part of sure so this is the second book in my matchmaker of Edinburgh series and that is a Scottish uh, historical set all in Edinburgh And um, this one is about, of course, a character that popped up in the first book. Um, His name is Jonathan Moray. He is a newspaper man, and he was one of the men who wrote and published about a woman named uh, Carolyn Burkett. And Carolyn was uh, infamous when she was living in London because she sued her fiance who jilted her. So uh, during this time, if you were a woman and your fiance left you, you could actually sue for breach of promise and uh, basically uh, reclaim damages. So she did that. And this case became very, you know, really big deal because he's a future, you know, heir to an earldom and all these things. So basically she escapes to Edinburgh thinking, all right, I'm going to restart my life. I'm going to find a husband. I'm going to live a really normal, quiet life. 
And of course, he realizes that she's there and she's a really big story. And so he sort of launches her back into being notorious while she's trying to find this husband, kind of like any husband will do. And uh, the two of them spark and hate each other and get under each other's skin. And of course, that is a fantastic uh, formula for, for some romance. So. It is. I got to read it. Thank you very much for the copy. I told you that I was all into it one night and my husband came in. He's like, are we going to watch Peaky Blinders tonight? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, I want to finish this. Well, I, I will never keep you in. from Killian Murphy. So, you know. I know. It's, it is tough. Um, but this was a really great uh, historical romance. Is it Victorian? Is that correct? It's Victorian. So it's uh, it's the late 1870s, if I remember my timelines correctly. I finished this book a while ago. So it's it's one of those weird things as an author that sometimes um, you finish a book and you put it to bed and you think, okay, great, I'm working on something new. And then the book comes out and you, ha- you have this moment thinking, oh God, what were my character names? What was the plot? What happened? <laughs> Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, Where did you get the idea for this woman who sues her fiancé and becomes a huge story? So I've, um, I studied history when I was in college and I've always been fascinated with women who were kind of on the fringes of society, um, for whatever reason, whether that was because they chose to have a profession or they needed to have a profession or, um, they were outcast for whatever reason. So I always thought breach of promise cases were particularly interesting because they were very public. Um, you know, if you sued your fiance, people were going to pick up and notice. And this was a period of time where, um, newspapers would write about these types of stories. So, you know, you potentially could win some money, um, and recoup some damages because presumably your reputation would have suffered. But at the same time, um, you were taking a really big risk socially in doing that. So, I thought it would be an interesting premise to start with, and then I wanted to kind of sit there and think, well, who would be the worst possible hero for this woman, this poor woman to fall in love with? And uh, I figured that would be the man who sort of helped make her notorious. So um, I have a journalism background, and I seem to accidentally write about journalists a lot. Um, I've done it before. And uh, so he seemed to be kind of the perfect... Um, the perfect hero for her so I uh, that's kind of where those two came from what I loved about Caroline was that I'm not sure I'm gonna try and make sure I get the right words here yes she was very realistic oh thank you like you said she, I mean in a lot of ways I mean she wants to find a husband and she really has no romantic ideas about it she just knows that she's in a place in a time period where she has to have someone supporting her and so she's not and she's not an innocent miss nope uh she's 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 seen some things she's seen some things she's been around a few blocks um but that makes you respect her when she goes toe-to-toe with moray too is that she knows what she's doing she's dealt with a few reporters she she doesn't have any um oh what's the word i'm looking for um delusions about what Mm -hmm. kind of man or what kind of job he has. Uh, but what I liked about him as well, what I thought was a good detail you put in, was that um, he hates being written about in other newspapers. Oh, yeah. Which is so true to form. As a journalist, I, I've been written about once, and I hated it. It was very interesting. I wanted him to have more, actually. Like, get get a taste of your own medicine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, See what it feels a like. crazy. He... He gets really upset. <laughs> he gets really upset. Yeah, it's it's sort of, he feels like when this gossip rag, this rival gossip rag writes about him, he feels like this unbroken, or this unwritten code has been broken. So um, he storms off and he kind of takes it up with the owner of that gossip rag, who's his biggest rival. And he's really furious. And he's furious for sort of all the right reasons, but also all the wrong reasons, because he's the guy who's doing this, you know, three days a week. Uh, to a bunch of other people so you know it's kind of like well where do you get off being all upset about this because this is what you do on a daily basis so um yeah I liked the idea that he was kind of called out on his own um his own decisions and behaviors and and I kind of got the feeling he made up that code too I mean was that based on real life or 
No, I mean, journalists... Is it just in his own head? <laughs> I think it's kind of in his own head. Um, you know, I think he he's definitely one of the more successful, bigger um, publishers in, in Edinburgh, in my Edinburgh. Um, I think really the reality is that you don't get to make the rules, right? News is news. But at the same time, he feels like he should be owed some sort of professional courtesy, even though he's, you know, rivals with these guys. And and the man who, it's no, it's no spoiler that the man who is his rival basically says, well, you've been seen with this woman that you've been writing about and you put her back in the headlines. So she's fair game. So by association, I hate to tell you, but uh, you may, you may end up in the paper and his, his rival's absolutely right. So. Yeah, I think it was the rival's reaction that made me realize this wasn't a code. You're just making up these stories as you're going along. Everyone's playing by the same rules here. Yeah, yeah. It can sometimes be merciless, and especially I know I never worked in sort of society or gossip, uh, gossip journalism. But um, yeah, it's I mean it's fair game. It happens. So. And you've got a third book in this series coming out in May. Is that I do. Correct? Yes, my spy book. <laughs> Oh, it's a spy book? It's a spy book. I've always wanted to write one. And I, so I have a, I love tropes in romance novels. Big surprise. Um, and I have always wanted to write a spy book. And so I decided I would do that with a character who's in the second book of uh, the Matchmaker of Edinburgh series. And that is Lavinia, the dressmaker. So you, <gasps> yeah, so you get a little bit of her backstory in the second book. And then you get all of her story <laughs> in the third book. You know, I, I, I mean, I just gasped audibly when you said that because I thought she was a really interesting character too because in a lot of historical romances, the dressmaker is very, oh, Cherie, let me put you in this. And she's, you know, I will give you the finest French fashions. And Lavinia was very, I don't know, down to earth. and um, She's a businesswoman. Yeah, yes. and and you find out through her backstory that she's had to be a, a businesswoman and had to be very practical for a long time, and she has her own, you know, unhappy backstory, and and you know that informs all her things with the hero. But it's it's a second chance romance. Um, they were engaged once, which again, no spoilers um, there because it happens in the very the very first part of the book. You find out that they're no longer engaged, and um, they hate each other's guts. So another enemies to lovers, and it's been a really really fun one to write I'm actually in edits for it right now um but I'm really well, you know where to enjoying send that it. when you get done I do I do and <laughs> I might need your expertise because you are you are very very good with the you know mystery reveals and all of those types of things and this is new territory for me having a little bit of it's not romantic suspense it's very solidly historical romance but having little you know reveals about about the secondary plot that's going on in the background so I might need some help I'm going to cry. It's <laughs> one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. Well, I, I, I would only say it if it was true. So, Aww. Well, there's a matchmaker running through all three books as well. Is yes. she also involved in the spy something or other? Yeah, Moira Sullivan, my matchmaker, seems to be up to everything in Edinburgh. She knows everything about everyone, and uh, she has these... Uh, little red bound leather bound notebooks that she writes all her little notes in about all these different people so she's a good person to know so I thought she was kind of a natural transition into this kind of world of intelligence if somebody wanted to know something about people of a certain class in Edinburgh they would go to her because she sort of has the keeper of all the secrets as my aunt used to say she knows where all the bodies are buried so (laughs) yes and I'm going to ask you a question. I think I asked you why you were writing book one. Yes. Does the matchmaker get her own book? I would really love to give her her own book. Um, she's a widow in the series right now. And when I originally pitched it to my editor, I did pitch it with her story. Um, we decided to uh, cut that book out and leave it open-ended. So if people want Moira's story, they can have Moira's story if they want to tell me they want more of a story. <laughs> but I do tell, have a plan for her. Julia's, tell Julia's editor that you would like a matchmaker romance. I just think that would be so great. I don't know if I've read that or not before. I probably have. But 
someone who's always looking out for romances of other people all of a sudden finding a romance herself i think would be a really great story for julia kelly to write hint hint universe <laughs> well it would be really fun and i i have to say i was a long long-term reader of um the pink carnation series by lauren willig and i always loved this idea that the series would wrap up on the pink carnation story and um I liked the idea that you got all these other things and then you were so invested in this character and so invested in her finding her happily ever after that that was a really a great way to end the series. So maybe that's maybe that's in my future. We'll see. We'll see. Do you have to do research for all these historical romances you do? I do. So I have a baseline knowledge of uh, Victorian history, Victorian British history, because that's what I studied. Um, I, I have a the most exciting degree. Um, it's a it's a British history or a degree in history, but my focus was British sexual and gender history from about the 1850s to the 1860s, You're specifically in London. No, so that's You're where I... <laughs> I never knew this before. That's where I did all my research. And I did a lot of it around um, uh, prostitution, vice, um, all those kinds of uh, really fun, juicy things. So when my friends would be asking me, you know, what kind of papers are you writing? I'd be writing, you know, 20, 25 re- page research papers with, you know, all sorts of sourcing from the Lancet about contagious, you know, the contagious disease act um, and and sexually transmitted diseases in Victorian Britain so I have a really weird deep knowledge of certain areas of British history that are a little bit more seedy you have the perfect parts of British history to be a romance author. <laughs> basically it's been really fun and then I have a I have an interest in in uh, fashion history also just because I really like pretty clothes so um, I definitely do research and for certain things like with this book, I had to learn about steam presses and how that process worked and also how it could all break down. And um, so I did a lot of research and there are some fantastic, really nerdy YouTube videos of men, always men for whatever reason, going through and like hand cranking or, or steam, you know, using a steam press to produce these pages and setting type. And you can find a remarkable number of things that are really, really useful about very specific topics on the internet. And I think the joke is amongst romance, uh, especially historical romance authors, is you guys do all this research on very specific things, and then it takes like two lines out of your book. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I believe, I can't remember who it was. It may, was it Cat Stevens? I don't remember who it was, but they were saying something like, you know, I just did an hour's worth of research about, you know, whether there would have been a specific type of menu service at this type of cafe in London in 1840. And I was like, oh, no, actually, could I know the answer to that question? That would be really helpful. (laughs) Well, because as soon as you said you did all this research on fixing the steam press, I I know what scene you're talking about Mm -hmm. in the book. And I'm thinking, that didn't take very long. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's it's literally a throwaway line. But it, it matters to me. And it also matters to that one person who's going to email me and say, you got this wrong. And I know that's going to happen. That just happens with, with historical romance. But the less you can have that happen, the better. So, What's the craziest thing you've ever got an email about? Do you want to tell me? Yeah, I got an email. So one of the things that I think readers don't necessarily understand um, or know about because we don't necessarily talk about it is that we don't have a huge amount of control over our covers in a lot of cases. So when you see a historical romance um, and you see, you know, the the big dress and the dress that's sliding off the woman and there's no way she's wearing a corset under that thing, um, that's not our choice more often than not. And I think there are some really big name authors who have a lot of control over their their covers, but I'm not one of them. So I kind of cross my fingers and hope for the best. And I I got a very, really angry email about the cover for this book, actually, The Taste of Temptation. And um, the emailer said, I cannot believe that your heroine is on the cover wearing a bad 80s prom dress. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, one, it's it wasn't my choice. Two, it's it's not a bad 80s prom dress. Like, it, it may not be super accurate to 1870 because dress dress shapes change so much during during you know the 19th century and if you really know what you're talking about of course you know that that's not a dress from that era but 
at the same time, I kind of thought, I, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> don't, I, I'm not the one who gets to say, I mean, I, if I truly, truly hated it, I could email them and say, oh my God, you can't put this cover on my, on my book. I, I'm begging you. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's a historical romance cover. It, it evokes, it evokes a certain, um, it evokes a certain feeling. And I think that this, uh, this cover evokes the feeling of this book really well. So I was actually really happy with it. I think they're doing a great job with your covers because, like you said, it, they evoke femininity and sexuality and a dreamy, romantic quality. I mean, it's 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 a historical romance cover. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I really hoped for because I I wanted to write these books. These books are about the women in them, um, and I I don't think I can pretend at all that that's not the case. Um, I really like writing about women's relationships with, um, you know, their, their female friends. And so I try to thread that through all of my books. And uh, I, I think the focus of these books is on the women in them. The, you know, the heroines are the driving force and the heroes are great too. And I love them and they're kind of forces to be reckoned with, but they're really these, these women's love stories. So um, I was very happy that my covers ended up looking the way they looked for this series. So. Uh, like I said, I approve. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. You also write contemporary romance under a I, different name. I do. I'm a woman of many names. What are the biggest uh, differences between the historical and contemporary romance genres for you? For me, do a lot of it, it, it has to do with voice, I think, and tone. I mean, there's definitely... I have a voice, <laughs> but the language is different when you write for historical than when, when you write for contemporary. And I think a lot of that is kind of a looseness with language in contemporary. And um, I definitely get more of a chance to open up my vocabulary of swearing, which is always enjoyable. Although I don't suppose I, there's any reason I couldn't swear a lot in historical romances. And you I do. You would use maybe different terms. I'd use different terms. I definitely would frame it in different ways, I think. Um, yeah, I think those are the big things. With with historical romance, a lot of the romance tension comes from, you know, forbidden class, you know, crossing class barriers or, you know, there's a, there's this whole tension of if you have two people who are unmarried in the Victorian era, they're not supposed to be alone together. So how do you get them together and how do you put them in a situation where they know they're compromising themselves, especially the woman? She knows that she's compromising herself, but this is her choice, right? So it's all about choice. It's all about deciding that she wants to be in this relationship. It's all about deciding that she's going to consent to whatever it is that they're going to do. So you have to kind of build in um, that sort of tension in contemporary romances as well, but you don't necessarily have the ability to lean on this, um, social, uh, this social convention that women have to be, you know, pure and they can be ruined and all of that. So I think a lot of, a lot of it, ends up becoming how do you create that same sort of excitement and tension and worry because a lot I mean to be quite frank if if my characters in contemporary romances really wanted to they could just go home and sleep with each other like there's nobody saying no um at least in not in in the books that I've written but there has to be some sort of internal reason why you know why they're they're being kept apart and they have to be making a choice to um get over that ultimately yeah, I think that is really tricky, and I've talked about that with some other guests, and I always come back to it as a, when I'm writing contemporary romance or thinking about writing contemporary romance, is exactly what you said. What's the conflict here? Why can't these two people just sleep together or shack up together? Yeah, why not? <laughs> or whatever. We don't have those barriers anymore, so what is it um, that is going to really make someone's heart go up into their throat and you know, stay up till two o'clock reading it. Yeah, and exactly. historical, you've got the the prospect of being ruined. You've got the prospect of society or whatever. In fact, I almost thought in this book, uh, Taste of Temptation, I thought they were going to get caught a couple of times. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I don't know if you were you were leaning that way or something, but um, I were have, a couple of times. Yeah, I've definitely written that. And in an earlier draft, it's funny you mentioned that because in an earlier draft, there's a there's a particular scene um, where things really come apart. And the first time I wrote it, I did have them get caught. 
Um, but I thought that was a little too close to what I had written for um, the first book in a different series called The Governess Was Wicked, where they're caught um, in a compromising position. and It changes the whole dynamic of the book. So I thought that was maybe a little too close, and I wanted to try to go a different route with it. But I definitely have a very early draft somewhere in my Scrivener file um, that has that that written into it. Oh, how funny. Well, I definitely felt the impending tension. I was like, if they get caught here, what's he going to do? Is he going to offer for her hand? And is she going to say no? And then there's going to be another scandal. I mean, so was... many scandals. So how many scandals? So many. <laughs> <laughs> there's our tagline right there. Yeah, I mean, that's so basically many so many scandals. That's my new I'm going to get business cards printed with that on it. <laughs> that's awesome. I like it already. All scandals all the time. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, there you go. All right. So on a personal note, mm-hmm. in 2017, you moved from Manhattan in New York City to London. And I you've been did. blogging about these big life changes. And you said in a blog post uh, recently that London fits you better in a lot of ways. And I was wondering if you could tell us how. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I've lived in three major, major metropolitan areas. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Then I moved for graduate school and work to New York. And I was there for almost nine years. Um, They say that it takes 10 years to become a New Yorker. So I got out just before then. (laughs) Um, But I I decided to move to London. And I think it's funny. I'm only about seven months in, so I'm going to qualify this as it still feels very new and very novel. Um, but I think that there's something about London that, first of all, I'm, I'm drawn to it, obviously. I've written a lot about it. I've researched. I mean, that was all my, my history degree was based around the history of the city that I'm sitting in right now. But I think part of it also is just... Um, my mother is English, and there's always been a thread through my childhood where my father, who's an Anglophile, he married an English woman, um, the, the families felt very English in certain ways. And so I think part of that is a weird coming home to a place that was never home, but where I have a huge amount of family. And my sister and her fiancé, um, who's Scottish and would be very happy to hear his uh, his name on the podcast, uh, his name is Mark. Uh, yeah, so Mark. Justine and Mark are in uh, Oxford, and my parents are in London, soon to be retiring to the countryside. And part of it for me, the fit is just being closer to family, because I've been trying to do that ever since I left for college um, to get closer and closer to them. But instead, I moved to New York and then they moved to London. And so I sort of just it took me a while to catch up. (laughs) But um, part of it also is just there's something about the feeling of the city. You walk around and there is just hundreds and hundreds of years of history here. And, um, you know, I live in this neighborhood that that is so old in, and it's new for London, relatively. It was built in sort of the mid-19th uh, century. And I'm moving to a community that was, I think my house that I'm moving to was built in like the 1870s or 1880s. And as an American, that feels so remarkably old, but it's really not here. So part of it is just this kind of feeling of things being lived in. And then part of it also is there's an intensity about New York that I really loved. Um, but I think it was also tough. It was really tough and really tiring. And a lot of it is just that really in your face, you know, you have to fight for it. And don't get me wrong, London's the same way. You have to, you know, fight on the tube and to get to work and you have to do all these things. But the attitude is different. It's not quite as intense. And I think it's a little bit more fitting for me personally. I still love, you know, New York. I still love Los Angeles. I really love Los Angeles and I really miss it. But um, I don't know, at this place in my life, this feels this feels right. So I was really... I was really happy to make the move, and uh, I, of course, miss the people in New York, um, including our very good friend, Laura, um, but at the same time, I think it was the right thing to do, so I also felt a little bit like a romance heroine, you know, going off and having adventures, so um, I'm still having adventures. Well, I want to talk about that in just one minute, mm-hmm. but before that, um, there's been some big announcements this year that of events that are going on in London. Um, there's going to be a few royal weddings. <laughs> there are more than one and now. What what is going uh, on? More than one. So what? As an American living in London now, or half American, or 
what are you British American? Anglo American. We'll just call me that. Anglo American. <laughs> okay. As an Anglo American living in London, what's the scene like? Are people as interested in Meghan Markle as they are here? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, so, um, in some ways, the English can be as blase about you know the royals as um, people in New York can be about like seeing a celebrity walk down the streets they're they're interested but they don't necessarily let you know that um, so no it's definitely of course it's it's big news it was big news when um they made the announcement and i actually at the moment i'm living not very far from kensington palace so i went for a run that afternoon and went by the palace and all the news vans were were out and everything they'd already made the announcement and done the photo thing but um yeah, it's it's funny. I, I know that people are going to be watching and I know that people are going to be excited about it. But um, the people who were frantically text messaging me were my editor, um, you guys. So, you know, Lindsay and our, and our writer group, my best friend, um, Sonia, and really, really excited about it. And everybody else is kind of like, yeah, they're going to get married. I mean, we want to know when, but we're not really going to talk about how we want to know when. <laughs> so I think people um, will, of course, come out in droves and do the whole, you know, lining up in the streets and being excited. And um, But it's it's a little bit more of like, a, I don't know, a blase is probably the best the best way <laughs> I can put it. And then I guess, is it is it Eugenie who's, who's going to get married as yes, well yes. in October, I think? So... Well, I mean- Something like that. Same place. Are they going to line up for Eugenie's wedding? I don't think so. I, she's not nearly as as um, visible and exciting. I think she's eighth in line to inherit, so the chances are very slim. And but you know, it still gets attention and all that. But no, it's it's not. I don't think the. Yeah, I don't think it's as um, the the fervor is not quite as crazy as. Um, as with my American friends. But I also know a lot of journalists here, so it may just be that they're really jaded. <laughs> That's always a possibility. It's not because of anti-American sentiment, right? They're not, oh, no, not prejudicial against Megan. No, I'm, and I, I, I will think... fight for my, my girl Megan. <laughs> no, I'm actually very excited about the fact that she's that she's American. Um I think that actually the perception is that um everybody likes this generation of royals a lot more than um Prince Charles's generation of royals. I think they're very likable. They're very, you know, charity forward. And, you know, they have, um, William and Kate have these two adorable kids, soon to be three. And they're very likable. And, you know, with the exception of some of Harry's moments in in his youth, um, they really seem like they've kind of settled into this role of being ambassadors for the monarchy. So, and I think people have a lot of affection for the queen as well. She's, um, she's just been queen for so long. Um, my mother would not want me to tell you how old she is, but my mother was born just before, uh, just a few years before the coronation. So really all that she really remembers is, is Queen Elizabeth. So, um, yeah, I think it, you know, people, people have a, a different sort of attitude, but it's also a funny place because like I was sitting at the table in the summer and cannons started going off and I realized that they were doing, um, I think it was Prince Philip's birthday. They were doing the, uh, the gun salute for his birthday. Oh. So, so it wasn't the Normans invading? No, no Normans that I saw. <laughs> um, but you never know. It, it could happen. Um, but history like, does repeat itself. It does. And like the horse guards troop by the house every once in a while. And it's just, it's weird because you're in London and you have moments of being like, oh, that's really British. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, a, it's a very strange place to live in some ways. And it's a great place to live also. Well, I cannot wait to come visit. Please, please do. Putting that out there in the universe. I think I do it about daily, honestly. You can vouch for that. Well, if, <laughs> if you would like to come for one of the royal weddings you're more than welcome oh 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 i better get a ticket (laughs) i know one of them's coming up i know all right well we'll put that on hold we'll discuss that um during the holidays you introduced me to a game i believe called choices (laughs) yes i forgot about that it's still on my phone it's still on my phone. I had to stop playing. So do you want to explain to everyone what this what this game was? So I don't even know how I found it, but it's basically um, 
it's kind of like choose your own adventure for your iPhone, but you can choose what genre you're going to be in. So like my sister's a fantasy reader. And so she chose fantasy, but I of course chose romance because I was far smarter um, <laughs> in making my choices. And they give you little books. So one was, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was something like the prince's choice or the royal wedding or something. And so you go through and read these little narratives and then you can make choices about, you know, do you speak to the disarmingly handsome bachelor who showed up at your restaurant um, and who you're waiting tables on or you know do you say you know oh, I've got no time for you whatever and and so based on your choices you get these little um, scenarios playing out and it, it's a whole romance um, it's really fun and I weirdly got part of Twitter playing it <laughs> so it was really good for during the holidays yes you kind of don't really have a lot else to do or you can't pay a lot of attention to some other things like a movie or something you'd be like oh I can play this while I'm waiting for cranberries to boil or something yeah exactly and it's not nearly as involved as reading a book so you can kind of pick it up and put it down so while I was preparing for this interview I was thinking like you intimated earlier that your whole last year has been like the beginning of a really good romance slash women's fiction <laughs> I know and <laughs> I wanted to make a version of choices for you to play. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm excited. Don't get too excited. I didn't have much time. I'll moderate my <laughs> excitement. Okay. All right. Let me let me get in the get in the game mode here. Okay. You're a news reporter and a single woman in busy NYC. But one day you decide to follow your dreams and move to London to write a romance novel. You go to a cafe to write. You have to pick your outfit. What would it be? Oh my God, this is so my life. I love it already. <laughs> Except it wouldn't be a cafe. It would be a bar, but that's okay. <laughs> I am writing this story. I know, here. I know. Okay, okay. I'll be good. <laughs> What's okay. your outfit? Uh, so I'm just going to put what I normally went to write in. Uh, and so it's just jeans and flats and a tank top and a sweater. Excellent. You put on your headphones. What are you listening to? Oh, blues music. Definitely. I'm a huge blues fan. The waitress comes up to you. What'll you have, love? <laughs> um... I'm going to have a cup of tea because I'm in a cafe, right? I'm not in a bar. <laughs> okay, yes. great. Cafe. I'm going to have a tea. All right. After you've been there a bit, enjoying your tea, a gentleman approaches you. Is he A, a polished, handsome, younger son of a duke, or B, a scruffy, athletic football star? Okay, clarifying question. Do I know <laughs> that he's the younger son of a duke yet? You might recognize him from the Daily Mail. Sweet. Okay. So being me, I'm super curious and I'm just like, why is the younger son of a duke hanging out with me? All right. We're going to talk to the duke. Okay. You needed a writing break anyway. So when he asks you if you'd like a coffee, you say yes. Just saying. Yeah. I have to move, I have to move this along. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying yes. After a pleasant conversation, he says... I don't want to let you go. I'd love to take you out tonight. Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Can I change my shoes? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> you don't know Sorry. what shoes you need to put on yet. That's true, that's true. Which one does he say? A. Would you go to a Liverpool game with me? Oh my gosh, you know B. me so well. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go to a royal showing of Hamilton in the West End with me? Or C. <laughs> If you'd like, I'll make you dinner while you stay home and finish your words for the day. Oh, you are such a good man, but we're totally going to the Liverpool match. Yes. Oh, that's right. I should have said Liverpool match. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'll say that next time. And that's all I have for now. <laughs> oh, my God. But what's the end of my story? I'll have to work on it. Okay. Because I, I was going to do it, but it got a little complicated because I wasn't sure which ones you were going to pick. Okay, that's fair. And, that's totally fair. And I didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like it already. So funny story, when I told my agent that I was going to be moving, um, she basically said to me, if you meet somebody, I can sell that book. <laughs> 
So my goal, apparently, according to my agent, is to meet the younger son of a duke. Well, the only son of a duke or, you know, whatever, son of a duke. And uh, and to get hitched and then she can sell that book. So, you know, I got to get on it's this. Not a, it's not a bad goal. I mean, I, I feel like in the way of life goals, it's definitely a stretch, but it may be doable. You never know. And I've read a lot of historical romance, so I know that sometimes they don't even know if they're the younger son of a duke. You know, that's actually a very good point. <laughs> he could be the scruffy American football player, but really his mother brought him over like mm -hmm. when he was a baby and he doesn't even know, but a private detective is actually tracking him down because his father thinks that he may be dying. And so he may inherit the title. I'm just saying. Or he was like the poor cousin mm -hmm. and a bunch of other cousins died in a carriage ride. Yeah. And a barrister has to has to come tell him that he's the now the Duke of Nottingham again sure. I I I really think Nottingham again sure is a really nice part of the country and I would be okay with that. <laughs> but we'd have multiple states, so you know, we could pick and choose. Well yeah, and spend um winters in LA. Naturally. I'm working on that for you, too. I like it. All right, we'll send this out into the universe and right. um, make sure it happens. Well, if we write our own story, that's what happens. Exactly. All right, now I want to talk to you about the books you like to read and not the books you like to write. Yes. So was there a book that was formative or changed your life? Ooh. Um, I'm... So I hate to be really boring, but a lot of the really formative ones were, you know, like Pride and Prejudice, things like that. But... I would say more than Pride and Prejudice, uh, probably the first book where I saw a lot of myself in the heroine was Persuasion. And I think that, um, I won't speak to for everybody, but um, people who connect with that book, I think in a lot of cases, it's women who feel like they maybe haven't had the chance to express what it is they really want, or they feel like they're waiting for something. And... Um, I don't know. I just, I, I love Pride and Prejudice and I love Elizabeth Bennett, but in some ways she's spunky and, and fierce in a way that I never was when I was younger. And so I think I connected with Anne Elliot a lot more. Um, and I really loved that book. I just absolutely, I thought she really, the way that she grew into herself um, really was, was formative in interesting ways. But um, I've talked about this before. The other book was Outlander, and that is completely my mother's uh, fault slash uh, the best thing she may have done for me. She, when I was 16, she gave it to me and said, I think you might want to read this. And I'd read, you know, really sweet romances. And, you know, I used to get these books from like the remaindered bookstore we had um, on Lake Avenue in Pasadena growing up. Uh, and I read Outlander and it was like, it was the first time that I really read sex on the page, but it wasn't just sex. It was like two people who are really, really passionate for each other. And it just, the story was so exciting and everything that was happening was kind of simultaneously ridiculous and wonderful. And I just, I just remember absolutely loving it. And I think that that's probably what kickstarted me trying to scribble some romance stuff uh, in the back of notebooks and, you know, really really failed attempts at writing books but it was important because it, that's what that's what started it so well good job mom I know she's pretty smart like that she really is what a great job um, what a great book to get someone started off on yeah this road well and, and about your persuasion I just wanted to say that um you know Pride and Prejudice is amazing but I always am interested there is a smaller devoted persuasion fan group mm -hmm. and I haven't ever put together why or you know what might they might have in common but um yeah there I don't I don't think you'll be alone there I think a lot of other people identify a lot with that book yeah there's something about it that I think at the right time in your life and the right person it really there's something about it that just speaks to part of you mm-hmm when people ask you for recommendations, is there someone, an author or a book that you always recommend? You know, I, um, no, <laughs> because what I end up doing is I usually ask what type of movies they like, specifically when they're trying to find out what romance they should start with. Um, and I've, I've been able to hook a couple of friends on romances and, um, 
so I usually try to match up something with the type of movies they like. So if they love romantic suspense, um, I try to get them into something, whether it's, you know, one of the big Nora Roberts that's more, I, I love, um, oh God, is it Montana, Montana Sky? Sky? Yeah, yeah, Montana Sky. I love, I love that one. And that has a romantic suspense element through it. And there are a few other books I recommend. If people love romantic comedies, you know, I typically send them towards like Bet Me, um, by Jennifer Crusey and um, historical romance. It's sort of, there's so much, that's such a big genre that I, I usually try to narrow them down a little bit if there's a time period they like. So um, yeah, it just really depends on the person and the personality. Because I know in terms of romance, it's really hard to recommend a book to somebody because um, there's so much available that you just may not hit the right thing. And I never want to, I never want to recommend something so off base that that person thinks, God, I'm never reading another romance novel because they may not know that there's just so much available. That's really interesting. I, I'm going to have to think about that one for a while using movies. Although as soon as you said it, my local library or one of the librarians there always has um, displays if you mm -hmm. like Star Wars, you will like this. And I love really that. And they're really using things from pop popular culture to make recommendations. Um, I love that in particular because I don't think of myself as a sci-fi or fantasy reader, but my sister is. And she's very, very good at saying, yeah, but you really love Firefly. So I think actually you do love space opera because, you know, Star Wars is also kind of space opera. So you should read this. And so she gave me Artemis by Andy Weir to read. And I really enjoyed it. It was basically a heist movie on the moon, um, but in a book. And, um, you know, things like that. So specific recommendations can really help break through that idea of, oh, I don't read that genre, or I have no interest in that. And your sister, I just want to mention, has a book blog, doesn't she? She so does. She's good at this. She is, <laughs> yeah. Her, her handle on Twitter and Instagram and all that is I should read that. Um, and there's a lot of cats and a lot of books on there. So <laughs> I love it because, well, both of you are starting to just post pictures of everything you're reading and bed or bath <laughs> yeah so we she my birthday is in january so um for christmas her fiance got her this little like bamboo bath caddy that has a slot for a wine glass and a place for your phone or a candle and then a little prop to put your ipad on so i loved it so much that they actually just got it for me for my, for my birthday so i took it on my maiden voyage um and this was a it, gift from mark yes it was a gift from mark and from justine and um I just wanted yeah. to say his name again <laughs> i'll have to send this for him to him and be like how many times did your name get mentioned mark <laughs> oh mark what a great gift that was he's very good at that mark <laughs> mark is good at that all right this should be a blog too i think so <laughs> so what have you been reading lately with your new bath tray well i'm reading rita books right now which i'm not allowed to to talk about so oh. i have eight of them so i've read three um yeah so people who don't oh maybe i have seven i have to count anyway yeah, i was gonna say we should probably explain what that is yeah so rita the ritas are sort of i usually tell people they're the oscars of romance so um basically they're the highest award that you can get in the industry and um the nominations come through in uh march but first basically uh, you enter and then if you uh, enter you're required to judge and there are other people who judge as well and um, you go through and you read all these books and then you rate them and um, I really enjoy my reader reading mostly because I usually get genres I don't normally read and I have found authors that I've really really enjoyed and I've continued to read them beyond the readers um, and it's just it's interesting as a check-in because sometimes I just get so caught in whatever you know time period or genre of romance that I that I read that it's really fun to open up a bit and, and be a little bit more adventurous in my reading but um because I can't talk about those <laughs> I've been reading a lot of women's fiction because my next big project is actually a women's fiction book um which I can talk I about I can talk about yeah it. I know I can talk about it very soon because I may be getting a cover next week um, I, I feel ridiculous I've had a contract signed for this but I've also been like waiting for a while until I've finished writing the book and so now I have a draft so I'm doing edits so I feel like I can talk about it now it feels more like it's actually going to happen 
because um, there's something <laughs> I know there's something real. Um, so what have I been reading? I read a really fun uh, sort of mystery historically sort of not really romance but has romantic elements to it called Dangerous Crossing by Rachel Reese and it's about a woman who goes um, and takes a, uh, a cruise ship journey basically um she's going to become a woman who uh works as a domestic servant in australia she's a british woman and so her passage is paid for as part of her working and something happens on the on the journey and so it's kind of this mystery of what exactly happened there's somebody died you know that from the beginning but you don't know who and you don't know how and you don't know what's going on and so it's very atmospheric and um, it's really a lot of fun. I, I recommend that really highly. Um, and then I read over the Christmas season a Rosamund Pilcher book called Winter Solstice. I really, really enjoy reading her a lot. Um, that is my mother's influence. Again, very positive influence. And uh, what else have I read? I read... I love Rosamund Pilcher. I know. I, I, just, I just... There's something so comforting about her books. I love The Shell Seeker. Uh, the Shell Seekers. Mm-hmm. Um and then another comfort read, I actually got really ill on New Year's Eve, and um, not before any imbibing happened. It was the morning of <laughs> New Year's Eve. It was not fun. Um, so I had picked up at the, at the bookstore um, an author who I really love and have read for a long time, Sarah Addison Ellis. I'm sorry, Sarah Addison Allen, and her book, The Lost Lake. Um, I've read her more sort of garden um, magical realism series. This was uh, sort of almost, I don't know, Southern Gothic. Um, and it's all about this uh, vacation um, camp that is sort of falling into disrepair and all these people that come for this last season at this vacation camp. And it sort of unwinds the story of what happened in the past. And I just, I really enjoy her books. They, they can be really atmospheric and she has some beautiful turns of phrase. And um, so those are, those are big comfort reads for me. Oh my gosh, I just looked it up. And girl, Sarah Addison Allen, if you're out there, I love your handbag. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, your books look great too, but... The books are beautiful, but I now have to look up the handbag. Yeah. Yeah, you do. But oh my gosh. Yeah, they look beautiful. So those are like women's fiction, or you said magical realism? Yeah, those are women's fiction. Um, she has a, a Garden Spells as one of, the, one of the books, and I think there's one called The Peach Keeper. I- um, I and I have one or two of those in my TBR pile. Yeah, I remember really. So part of my problem is I'm terrible with titles. I'm great with covers. And so I mix up which one is which. But I've read a bunch of those and they have sort of this witchy element to them. It's not really prominent, but there's a lot of like kind of almost green witch herbs and, you know, flowers have meaning and different, you know, slightly magical things happen every once in a while. And they're very romantic. I really, really enjoy them a lot. So did that help you feel better when you were so ill? It did. I was so ill. <laughs> I was so, oh, it was miserable. But yes, it did make me feel better. I had a dog with like me that. and I had a book and I was very happy. I like that. A book when you feel ill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> that should be a good question from that one. What, what's your comfort read when you feel ill? Yeah, because there could be all sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. I was just listening to a podcast the other day and someone was saying that they read... Um, I'm going to forget who. I want to say it was, um, and I can never say his name right. I'm sorry. Simon Chinini? Chinini? Oh, I'm not sure. He's a YA author. Okay. And, um, but he said he reads Archie comics every night before he goes to bed. Oh, I like that. It's comforting to him. Oh. Any other things you have been reading or recommending? I've been reading a lot of diaries of women who were in World War II for research. (laughs) Um, I, that's kind of been, that's kind of been it. Although I did pick up this book that looks... How do you grab those? Are they on the internet? Are they compiled or... Um, so I'm reading for a, uh, for book, the, the women's fiction book that I'm writing right now. And there's just a ton of stuff that's available over here because of something called the Mass Observation Project. And so before, I think it was just before the war started... World War II started, they had a whole bunch of people write in diaries and surveys and various things, their experiences, and they kept it going throughout, you know, post-war and austerity. And so there's this incredible record of 
people's lives. And it's, you know, people from, I'm specifically looking at service women, but, you know, it could have been men and women who worked in shops, who were in factories, who were, you know, deployed, who weren't um, teachers. It's really, it's it's an unbelievable resource, uh, just in terms of figuring out what the, the feeling of the time was, and what the attitudes were. I think there's, you know, rightly so, a lot of um, belief that the British were very stiff upper, upper lip about, you know, what was happening in, in World War II, and there's a lot of this sort of, you know, we'll just pull together because that that's what needs to happen. But there was also a lot of other stuff going on too. So, you know, I have a couple books about crime that was happening in London during the Blitz, and so this the diaries really help um, capture a lot of that. Um, But the other book that I thought I would mention, just because I think it's really awesome, is called The Extra Woman. It's by Joanna uh, Scutz, I think her name is, and it's basically about this woman named Marjorie Hillis. It's a it's a nonfiction, and she wrote a, a. guide called um i actually have to look at the title here let's see it's a guide called um live alone and like it and it was basically a self-help book for women in the 1930s who were you know living by themselves single working widows divorced and it was she was kind of fabulous and she empowered this you know generation of women mostly who are affluent and white, um, so, you know, and based in New York City and other major metropolitan areas, so it's definitely not completely inclusive, but she empowered this group of women to kind of live outside of what was expected in terms of their, um, in terms of, you know, being married and all those different things, and she kind of became this, this icon of the single womanhood um, for a while in the 1930s. And I just think she's, she sounds fascinating. So that's sitting on my nightstand right now. What amazing insights into this time period and the women of that time period. Yeah. Um, I would encourage you because <laughs> I would like to see it. Um, when you get ready to start promoting that book, I mean, a series of blog posts with all this stuff in it would be, I think, really fascinating. You read my mind. I would love to do ah. that. And I, I do have plans to do a little bit of writing about, um, you know, the women because they're just, these women were incredible. They were just, they were doing things that were not supposed to be socially acceptable, but were so important to what was happening in terms of the war effort, um, you know, in the United States and in, in Canada and the UK, they, they're absolutely incredible. So Right, because we now know that you will read 15 books and it will result in one page. Totally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. my editor's really tired of getting emails from me that that are like, well, in 1941, it wasn't until August that this thing happened, so I'm going to need to move the timeline of the book. And she's like, it's fine. Just move the timeline of the book. If You have to be accurate or else you're going to get a mean email. I know. From someone else. I'm telling you. Please don't send mean emails to to authors. Um, for stuff like that. <laughs> we really try. Are you ready for the lightning round, Miss Kelly? I am. I forgot about the lightning round. I'm excited. Okay. I've added a new question. Okay. But it's it's one we've already kind of touched on. So, okay. Let's get going. All right. Which royal wedding would you prefer an invitation to? Prince Harry's or Princess Eugenie's? Oh, Prince Harry's. Dark or milk chocolate? Milk chocolate. Coffee or tea? Tea. Do you answer your phone when it rings? I do, mostly because I don't have anybody's numbers saved because I moved about seven months ago and I don't know what British... Yeah, I just... Yes, I do. (laughs) Just in case. (laughs) Just in case. How do you usually waste time on the internet? Oh, God. Uh, Usually it's Facebook um, or Twitter. Um, but I also have a deep undying love for, um, just trolling around different, um, news websites, mostly to look at the culture and book coverage. Although sometimes it makes me ragey. Oh, I'll have to ask you more about why. This is the lightning round. (laughs) I I can't do that right now. All right. For your next vacation, will we find you on the mountains or the beach? On the mountains. Would you call it soda or pop? Soda. On a book cover, would you prefer abs, forearms, or a chiseled jaw? Oh man, forearms all the way, absolutely. Give me some forearms <laughs> like, with I like know the answer to this. Yeah, with with the shirt rolled up and like pushed up a bit. Yeah, that's good. Are you more likely to buy a book cover with abs or a beach? Oh, uh, probably abs. Actually, ooh, you threw me off. <laughs> I I think I'd go with abs. 
Okay. And the very important last question, what are your feelings about turning to the last page of a book first? You know, I never do it. And I have friends who do. Um, but I really love the surprise, even with romance novels where everybody says that, you know, the ending, which is true because you know that they're going to get together. I love the process of getting there. Thank you for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to share your love of a book with the world, you can go to our Facebook page and leave a comment. Or, this is the fun part, I have an actual phone number in our show notes. Call, leave a message about a book that you loved and you want the world to know about, and I will try to play your voicemail on the air so that you can be a part of this podcast, which, after all, is all about reading and readers. This is Lindsay Emery on Women With Books. Keep reading.